Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This week, we are going to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, or the TPP. Kind of. President Donald Trump actually ditched that one. We are going to talk about the comprehensive and progressive agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the CPTPP, which is officially the worst trade acronym I have ever encountered. Well done, guys. Okay, so on Saturday, November the 11th, 11 members of the original TPP announced that they had agreed the core elements of this new version, the CPTPP. So we are going to talk about that, why it was difficult, what they have agreed and what they have not yet agreed. And we're going to hear directly from my Peterson Institute colleague, Jeffrey Schott. For a long time now, Jeff has been leading our research evaluating the original Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And more recently, he's written about how other countries could actually go forward with the deal without America. Don't worry, we'll provide links to everything from our Twitter feed. Okie dokes. Right, so first, what has actually happened? Now, from all the headlines, you would think that this deal has dealt a killer blow to the Trump trade agenda. He rejected the 11 other countries and they are fighting back with this amazing new trade deal. Multilateralism one, Trump nil. But if you read between the headlines, this thing isn't quite as far along as as they suggest. So the statement said that they had agreed the core elements of a deal. But as I've been writing about this, I've been discovering that there are many stops on the journey from that first negotiation to a final signed trade deal. First, you get the negotiation, everyone's sounding each other out, haggling a bit. Then when you move a bit further, you get the core elements of a deal agreed. So that's what the CPTPP is. Then you can get a deal in principle. And then finally, you get an actual deal that you can sign. That's where the TPP was, right? It had been signed, agreed. We are some way away from that in the CPTPP. This thing has not been agreed, even in principle. But I don't want to kill this episode before it starts, so I should say that it is better than nothing. And it does look like they want to sign on that dotted line early next year. So this thing is happening, and I'm unfortunately going to have to get used to saying CPTPP. CPTPP. All right, so let's take a step back and talk about the history of this deal. It started out without the big players. So it was this agreement between New Zealand, Chile, Singapore, and Brunei in the mid-2000s. It was called the P4. Over time, it became a bigger deal. So everyone joined in. Americans joined in 2008, then Australia, Vietnam, Peru, Malaysia, then Mexico and Canada, and then finally, in 2013, Japan. So Japan and the US are really the big players in this deal. It was like this massive trade deal party. So it's worth reminding everyone what the point of this thing actually was. And so tariff cuts are nice, and that's what trade deals are about. But a lot of these countries already had zero tariffs applied toward each other through prior free trade agreements. So that really wasn't the main point. Part of what's going on here is the Obama administration's attempt to pivot to Asia, the recognition that China was a rising new power, and they wanted to pay additional attention to what was going on in that area of the world. There was also an attempt by the Obama administration to renegotiate the NAFTA agreement. So Canada and Mexico being part of this. This was their attempt to address concerns of that old deal. And then finally, President Obama really wanted to write what he called a 
21st Century Trade Agreement. So to establish the new rules for the international trading system, going deeper than tariffs, developing higher standards, baking them into trade deals, and doing so in a way that might make China somewhere down the line want to join this party too. Here's Jeff Sott to explain a little bit more. Many countries were doing it because it reinforced pressure to pursue domestic economic reforms that they know they need to continue to pursue to keep pace in a very dynamic region and to keep pace and competitive against China. The most obvious one is Japan. Prime Minister Abe's third arrow of Abenomics is about structural economic reform. And he explicitly linked TPP participation by Japan with that segment of Japan's economic development strategy. It is greater competition in the Japanese market spurred by easier access by foreign firms, goods and services firms, to compete against Japanese firms on their home turf. There's actually a similar story for Vietnam and Malaysia. These were emerging economies, and they wanted this deal to have a way to commit to making additional domestic reforms to make their economies just more competitive and productive and help them spur development. So the thing about these 21st century trade agreements is that they're really, really complicated. Writing rules is really, really tricky. And luckily... On this podcast, we have someone who was involved in the TPP negotiations and has first-hand experience of how complicated those rules were to negotiate. Chad? Well, sort of. So I wasn't actually involved in the negotiations, but during this time period, I was in the Obama administration at the Council of Economic Advisors. And one of your jobs when you're at the Council of Economic Advisors is you sit on interagency committees. And these are the committees that review, debate, draft, look at, argue over all of the proposals that the United States government is ultimately going to make in these trade deals. And this is where it gets really complicated. Trying to come up with new rules to get rid of the trade barriers that come up when two different countries have different standards. So not tariffs, but new differences that might crop up in the way they're regulating different products. So my favorite fight was this chapter in the eventual TPP that was referred to as regulatory coherence. So think about a government agency that might develop a product safety standard. For example, an agricultural product and how much pesticide residue that the government might deem is safe for people to be able to eat that type of a product. So in the United States and a lot of other countries, government agencies have to do cost-benefit analysis to figure out if it makes sense to limit the amount of pesticides and by how much those pesticides should be limited. What this regulatory coherence idea was It was the Americans pushing this sort of cost-benefit analysis system onto other countries that don't do it this way. But in the United States, the regulatory agencies themselves that have to do these kinds of cost-benefit analyses, they hate it. They hate having these requirements, these people looking over their heads before they can just implement regulations. So they saw this chapter in the trade agreement as potentially infringing on their own ability to regulate. Whereas others in the U.S. government were saying, no, 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 that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to get regulators in other countries to have to follow the same types of rules and procedures that you do. I'd like to think that Chad was somehow kind of pivotal there in the room signing the deal, but actually he was just on committees. So this deal took a really long time. It was really complicated. There were more than five years of intense negotiations. The final thing was over 5,000 pages long. The deal was really ambitious. And finally, it was agreed in October 2015 and then signed in February 2016. But it never got to the point where enough members ratified it for it to go into force. So in the United States, the deal was actually very controversial. 
it never actually went up for a vote before Congress. And part of that was because in the 2016 presidential race, pretty much all the candidates came out against it. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders. It never really had much of a debate on actual specifics involved in the deal. It was controversial among the other members as well, though, right? So one thing that the Americans fought for on behalf of its pharmaceutical industry was longer intellectual property protection. American law currently provides 12 years of protection. And over that time period, if you're a drug company and you have this patent, you get monopoly power and you can just charge whatever you want. And they say, obviously, that that incentivizes research and development to come up with new drugs. Consumers of those drugs do not like it. And under the TPP, they agreed eight years of protection. But the other TPP countries, they were the consumers. They did not like this thing. They had to face the higher prices. They didn't have pharma industries that would benefit from the profits of the protection. They complained a lot. They also didn't really like some of the provisions that would allow investors to sue governments. This is called the investor state dispute settlement provisions. Bigger picture... Some economists really, really hated the deal. They saw it as infringing on countries' sovereignty. Once you start writing the rules of the game into a trade deal agreed by trade negotiators, governments have their hands tied, they think that that really undermines democratic accountability. So the more rules you have, the less it is about tariff cuts, the harder this thing became for them to stomach. All that being said, Donald Trump was elected president, and on his first Monday in office, he actually withdraws the United States from the deal. Technically, that was it. To go into force, you needed members worth 85% of the combined GDP to ratify the deal. And without the United States, only 40% was left. But all was not lost. Even without the United States, there are still economic benefits to this thing. Maybe. And also just politically, it was really, really attractive to revive the deal. Everyone wanted to say, ha-ha, look, we can move on without you, America. However, it was just not at all straightforward to revive it. Without America, there was this huge question that opened up. Without the benefits of the access to the American market, should the remaining countries make new demands to rebalance the deal? It could get really, really complicated if they tried to do that. There was this other question of, okay, well, America's out. Should we design the new version to maximize the chances that they'll be lured back in? What if we suspend some provisions? So what happens is 11 countries make plans to announce a deal at the APEC meetings. This is the meeting of the Asia-Pacific ministers. Trump actually went to that meeting, and it was on November 10th, 11th, 2017. To be honest, the whole thing was a bit of a comms fail. I was on holiday, but obviously diligently following the trade news. And at one point, it seemed there was a deal. At one point, it seemed there wasn't. It was unclear who'd pulled out. But then finally, on November 11th, there was this joint statement saying they had agreed the core elements. And it also seemed like most of the stuff from the original TPP was still in there. I was talking to Wendy Cutler, who negotiated the original TPP on behalf of the Obama administration. And she was saying they deserved applause for keeping so much of it. But the interesting bit for trade geeks like us was alongside the TPP agreement in the statement was also a list of things that they suspended from the deal. Those controversial intellectual property provisions, suspended. Some of those new rules that allow foreign investors to sue governments under investor state dispute settlement, suspended. Now, some of these were the members of the new CPTPP taking the opportunity to get rid of the controversial bits of the deal that they didn't like. Here's Jeff Schott. 
there are some provisions that will be suspended. That's putting them off on the side until the United States is interested to come back to the table. If you delete them, then it's much harder to bring them back in. But if you suspend them, then you say, listen, United States, we really do want you to come back. We know these are areas that we didn't like, but you insisted on. And as a show of sincerity, we're keeping them on the table, hoping that you will come back and renegotiate them to cement your participation in this deal. What the other 11 members are doing here is that they're kind of dangling this carrot for the Americans. They're saying, if you return, we will give you this extra protection, maybe, for your pharmaceutical companies, or at least we'll consider negotiating it. And therefore, you really want to come back to TPP. There's also this other thing they're doing, which is kind of brandishing this stick. By the fact of them agreeing tariff cuts among themselves, what they're probably going to do is create this thing called trade diversion. If Australia or Canada agrees lower tariffs into the Japanese market as a result of the CPTPP, they could get an advantage relative to American exporters who are just staying still. And so that means that American exporters might then find it harder to get into the Japanese market. Here's Jeff. When TPP was negotiated, Australia and Japan signed a free trade agreement, and Australian beef exporters got small tariff concessions to ship to Japanese market. In the TPP, the U.S. negotiated better tariff deal, but those those tariff concessions are gone. And so today, the Australians pay a 27% tariff to enter the Japanese market. Seems high, but Relatively speaking, it still allows them to sell a lot of beef in Japan. The U.S. pays the tariff that any of Japan's non-free trade partners pays, which is 38%. And even if U.S. beef is a little better and a little less expensive than Australian beef, it's going to eat up that advantage, and the Australians have been eating our market share. U.S. exporters face discrimination today. The discrimination is going to get worse as a result of TPP liberalization. And we could have remedied that problem because TPP would have leveled the playing field for our exporters. Okay, so this all shows up Donald Trump fine. But there's still a few areas that the countries haven't agreed to. And this wasn't a simple task. So there's four official outstanding issues. So first, Malaysia wants to spend more time to adjust to rules relating to its state-owned enterprises. Brunei wants an easier ride with respect to rules relating to its coal sector. Vietnam wants more time before it can be sued for violating labor laws under the deal. And finally, we have this new trade villain in town obstructing trade deals, the Canadians. Very, very surprising. Canada wants more exceptions to the deal on cultural grounds. In the original TPP, they agreed a few exceptions on the grounds of preserving culture. So they are surrounded by America, which has a lot of soft power and a pretty dominant video films industry. They want to make sure that Canadianness is protected. And so what they did is they negotiated a bunch of exceptions in the TPP. But there were two exceptions to the exception. So there were two things that Canada wasn't allowed to get itself exempt for on cultural grounds. 
So under TPP, it wasn't allowed to force companies to make financial contributions, I think that's tax, to generate local content. And it wasn't allowed to restrict foreign audiovisual content. So this is known in trade geek circles as a ban on the Netflix tax. Netflix, video streaming service, is something that a huge number of Canadians subscribe to. And they've actually agreed a deal with the government to develop a ton of Canadian content. And I think the big question was, was this trade deal going to interfere with the tax arrangements that they would inflict on companies like Netflix? So what the Canadians want, they just want more freedom to say, hey, look, Canadian culture is really special to us. We don't want this trade deal tying our hands and setting rules in relation to this. And there's also a fifth outstanding issue that wasn't actually listed. And actually, there may be more than that, but one we've heard of. And that is Canada is having a standoff with the Japanese over automobile rules. It looks like the Canadians want better terms for their automobile industry. Under the TPP agreement, in order for Canadian automobiles to be able to get into the Japanese market, 45% of the value of the car had to be made up of parts and components from the TPP countries. Now, when America was in the deal, cars produced in Canada that have a lot of American content in them were able to access the Japanese market. But without it, they're going to struggle. So Canada is looking to try to negotiate some form of better market access to compensate. But this is also complicated politically. Any weaker rules of origin or anything like that that would encourage car companies to locate in Canada might not look so great when the Canadians are at the same time involved in heated debates and negotiations with the Americans in the NAFTA deal. And we know that cars are a super, super controversial item in that. Uh, In fact, as we record this, I think negotiators are fighting over this very issue. So the main takeaways from all this? Well, deals are hard. President Trump didn't kill the TPP, but he did leave a mess. Countries are now fighting a battle between self-interest and good politics. It would be really neat if they could show up Trump. Mm, But we'll see. We'll see what happens and when the CPTPP gets signed. That is all for Trade Talks. A special thanks to Jeff Schott at the Peterson Institute for all his work over the years helping the world understand just what is in this trade deal. We will be sending out tweets to his work. I'd also really love to thank Caroline Freund, who's been a real star helping us understand what is going on with all these car rules. And finally, I would like to send out a personal thanks to Wendy Cutler, who was former US TPP negotiator for setting some things straight. She's now at the Asia Society. And thank you for all of my buddies on the Trade Policy Staff Committee, this interagency process for sharing all the fond memories with me about regulatory coherence in the TPP negotiations. Okay, okay, I gotta stop you. We, we can't destroy the reputation of, of trade geeks even worse than it already is. Okay, listeners, please do leave us a nice review on iTunes. Just ignore that bit Chad said about regulatory coherence. Or do as I have been doing, which is telling all your friends about it. I've actually also developed a habit of just taking my friends' phones and subscribing them to Trade Talks without them realizing. So do follow my example. And if you have any specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bowne. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because being comprehensive wasn't enough for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it had to be progressive, too. CP, TP, CPTP, PP, CPTP. 
I hate this. I hate this acronym. I'm going to lose years of my life pronouncing and mis- and correcting other people mispronouncing it. Yeah, the correcting other people is the worst part. 